right, let's sing at Calvary, number 477. Oh uh -huh. 
Happy New Year. Suddenly 2016, I'm still writing 2014 on my checks. <laughs> I haven't made the transition yet to 15, and suddenly at 16, whenever we have these sorts of marks in time, I try to pause for a moment and recognize God's goodness to us. It's an interesting thing going on in the culture right now. Todd said that he and his wife went to the movies last night. She does have a name, Jennifer. It's not just Todd's wife. Went to the movies, and uh, he said the trailers before the movie. Was it three of them? That, that all had to do with the end of the world. You know, there's this sort of consciousness out there that it's getting bad and getting worse. This morning I was listening to the three men who prayed as we prayed in the back room and and there was that theme, you know, pray for Israel because it's it's getting worse over there. Pray for us, pray for America. It's getting worse over here. There is just a general consciousness that things are getting worse. And we all kind of see it. We all kind of feel it. We all kind of know it. Especially those of us who have been around for a few years. <coughs> <laughs> We, we really know, we can really tell the difference between what life was like when we were younger versus what life is like now. And I suppose every generation looks back on their youth longingly and thinks, oh, it was better back then. But there are things happening now that seem so very biblical. Uh, every day you read about ethnic groups against ethnic groups. We're going to read about that when we get to Matthew 24. Jesus talking about brother against brother, ethnos against ethnos, you know, all of that stuff. Wars, rumors of wars, even earthquakes in diverse places. We, we feel that now. We see that. So in that setting, with that going on in the world, we need to stop and recognize how very, very good God has been to us. Because it's true that the world is indeed becoming increasingly godless and Christ-hating, and even Christianity in the world is becoming so nonspecific, so embracing of all kinds of things that the Bible says are not to be allowed or adhered to in the church, we now see happening all the time in modern Christendom, and yet God has been good to us. And so... For 2016, my hope and prayer is number one. Like always, I hope this is the year we get to go home. I always start the year with that hope. I don't want to see 2017. It would be perfectly okay with me if I didn't see my 61st birthday. That would be okay with me. But if it turns out that we are here and we do and the Lord tarries and there are still years to go, the fact that he has been this good to us and this consistently protective of us for all these many years encourages me that he will continue to take care of his own and protect us and provide for us no matter what happens. If, in fact, the Bible is true and I contend that it is, then, yes, times are about to get increasingly worse. We're seeing the foreshadows. We're seeing early birth pangs, and if that's the case, 
if we are entering into that phase of human history where God is going to start wrapping up the times of the Gentiles, if in fact what the Bible predicts is around the corner, then the phrase that I have jokingly used for so long, cheer up saints, it's going to get worse, is actually right around the corner. It's coming. And that should increase your faith because it proves yet again that the Bible is true. It proves yet again that what God has said and what the prophets have predicted is accurate. And if that's the case, then as it gets darker, recognize that it's becoming gloriously dark. Because there is a time coming when Christ is going to crack the sky and he's going to come to get his church. And when he does that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with those who come up out of their graves and we will rise to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. Marvelous language. And as we see all the bad stuff coming to pass, that gives us increased hope and confidence that all the good stuff is going to come to pass because the Bible keeps proving itself over and over again. As you look through the Old Testament, you see prophecies that have come true in human history, prophecies that are undeniably accurately predicted that have actually happened in time. Things like Daniel predicting the succession of kingdoms that would oppress national Israel, and then sure enough, in time and history, we see that exact succession of nations rise up in the Middle East and then be swept off the map of history, exactly the way the Bible said. So the Old Testament has been so remarkably accurate, I can only assume that the New Testament prophecies will be similarly accurate and physical and genuine and literal because that's what happened in the past with God's prophecies. I can only assume that's what's going to happen in the future with God's prophecies. And as it continues to get darker, just keep looking for the light because he's coming. And that's how I get through every day. I fire up the computer and I look at the news and it all seems to be bad news, which of course is what the news industry is about. If all they told you was how good things were, you wouldn't check in with the news. So of course they have to tell you all the terrible stuff that's going on. But even when I look at little tiny details like Daniel saying that in the last days that men would run to and fro and knowledge would increase. And you look at the generation we're living in right now, and you look at it from God's perspective. For all of the history of humankind on planet Earth, human beings were born and then raised and then had their own families and their own children in the same vicinity. You look down on the planet now and you see people just running to and fro, traveling everywhere, going all over the place, unlike any previous generation in the history of the world. And knowledge increasing you have access via the internet to the collective knowledge of human beings so far. That's remarkable. How did Daniel know that? So I see the details. I see the, the hints, the clues. I see those things that are showing us that, that, in fact, the Bible is coming to its fruition. I hope it happens quickly. It might happen more slowly 
I'm not in charge of the schedule. If it were up to me, it would all happen this afternoon, and we'd be on our way home. <laughs> but it's just not up to me. So just remember, as we go into 2016 now, that God has been good to us, been good to this little church for 14 and a half years. This coming June will be 15 years as a public church. And remarkably, through those 15 years, we have weathered all kinds of storms, and we're still here. And we've had our financial ups and downs, and we're still here. And we've had trouble from within and trouble from without, and we're still here. And all of that is a testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness to this little church. And he's been so good to us for 15 years, well, 14 and a half, that I assume he's going to get us all the way through 2016. Or just take us home. Those are the options. Either we make it through 2016 or we go home. Either one of those is a good option. Right? Our God is good. That's what I'm saying. Turn to chapter 22 of the book of Matthew. Contextually, you have to recognize what is happening ever since chapter 21 and building to chapter 24 and even a bit in chapter 25. This is all Jesus prior to the cross in Jerusalem condemning the leadership in Jerusalem. And when you know that contextually, it will help you to understand the next couple of parables that we are going to read. Last week, in looking at the parables that had to do with the vine, that had to do with the vineyard, as you look at all of those parables, they were consistently Jesus condemning the leadership in Israel. And that is still the topic going into chapter 22. It remains the topic into chapter 23, where you're going to see Jesus stop speaking parables and just out and out openly condemn the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers. First, he starts with the parables so that they in figuring out the parables and understanding the parables, recognize that he's talking about them. But finally, he's going to stop speaking parables and just unleash on them and condemn them right to their face. But at this point, in chapter 22, he's going to speak another couple of parables, and they very specifically have to do with the condemnation of the Pharisees. And this first parable, which is the parable of the marriage feast, ends in the phrase, many are called, few are chosen. A couple of weeks ago, as we were looking at chapter 20, there was a textual variant where the phrase, the first will be last and the last will be first, and then the King James and a couple of other early translations tack on the phrase that many are called, but few are chosen. And what I mean when I say textual variant is that the earliest texts don't have that phrase back in chapter 20. But it's a perfectly good biblical phrase because it is in all the older texts and earliest texts in chapter 22. So it's a good biblical phrase, and probably what happened was, in the course of copying the text, a copyist, knowing that phrase, put that phrase in there thinking that that was where it belonged, and then everybody who copied his error just kept that error going time and time again. And I'm not saying that the error was made through any sort of purposeful chicanery. Uh, I have a computer, 
and I have a computer with spell check, and I have a computer with grammar check, and I will write articles and put them on my blog, and then a week later go back and read the article, and there will be some glaring spelling or grammatical error. I think, how did I miss that? I even have all of this technology helping me write this, and I still will make mistakes. Now think about a guy with a quill and a piece of parchment, and he's just making a copy after a copy after a copy. And after a while, he's just familiar with the text, and sometimes copyists would simply make a mistake, especially if you're looking line to line, line to line, line to line. And so you get these handwritten copyist errors. But then that error is duplicated by the next copyist who takes that guy's copy. Because we have so many thousands of copies of the New Testament documents, we can compare document to document and we can find what the earliest documents that we have said versus what the later ones said, and we can find every variation. Here's the important thing to know about textual variations. None of them, not a single one of them, though there are thousands and thousands of them because there are thousands of copies, not a one changes the theology in the least. Now, People who do textual criticism argue that because we have so many thousands of copies of the New Testament, because it was copied and copied and copied and distributed and distributed and distributed, and because we have all those many thousands of copies, we have a pretty good sense of what the original autographs actually said based on being able to compare all these copies. One of the ways that God preserved his word for us through all these generations was by making sure that there were thousands and thousands of copies. If God wanted the original autographs to not be in any way changed, to not risk that there might be a textual variant or a miscopy or a wrong letter or anything like that, the only way to guarantee that with any document is to only have one copy. If you have two people, three people, making handwritten copies of long documents, like the book of Matthew, then it's inevitable, it's going to happen, that someone is going to make a mistake somewhere. And that's all that textual variants are. But as I said, there's not a single textual variant anywhere in any of the copies or fragments of any part of the New Testament that changes the essential theology of the New Testament. And so critics of the Bible will say, well, you know, the Bible has so many copies and it's been through so many hands and so many people have translated it that we have no idea what the original autographs actually say. It's exactly wrong. The fact that we have this many copies is why we know what the original autographs say, because the multiple copies help us to find all the mistakes and variations and figure out what the most consistent reading is. So God has preserved his word for 2,000 years through the use of multiple copies and it being in so many hands and so many people. <clears throat> What's really astounding about it, though, is with all of these variations... The closer you get back to the original autographs and you look at the earliest documents that we have, again, the theology is consistent for 2,000 straight years. So, 
Micah said a couple weeks ago, well, what about that phrase? What about many are called, few are chosen? And I said to him, we'll get to it. And he accepted that as an answer, for which I was very grateful. So we're going to get that to that today because that phrase actually does have a context. And when you see it in context, you'll have no problem with the phrase. The reason people have problems with the phrase sometimes is because they try to impose their theology or their theological system onto the phrase. Here's what I'm talking about. We who believe in Reformed theology, we who go by the nickname of Calvinist, we use the word called in certain ways. We talk about effectual call versus general call. And what we mean by that is the word of the gospel, the preachment of the gospel has gone out into the world. And we say that's sort of a general call because the gospel is calling people to Christ, but not everybody comes. So that is spoken of as the general call. But then we also say that there is an effectual call. And you find that even with Jesus walking up to Peter, John, and James and saying, follow me. And you read that immediately they put down their nets, they left their father's business, and they followed Jesus. Why those three at that very moment? Well, because Jesus effectively called them. It was an effectual call. He said, follow me in a way that made them go, yes, we're following now. And so we say that those who are chosen by God, those who are the elect of God, are the ones that God calls effectively, and we have no choice but to follow. Jesus saying, my sheep know my voice. They won't follow a stranger, but they will come and follow me. Why? Because they know his voice. That's an effectual call as opposed to a general call. You get that? And then to complicate things even more, the particular Greek word that is used, and many are called fewer chosen, that word chosen is eklektos. It is the word for election. It is the word for chosen. So we know that Jesus is talking about the fact that some people are very particularly chosen by God. But then there is this word called, and many are called. And so people say, well, what kind of call is that? Is that an effectual call? Is that a... It's none of those. It's neither of those. Get all that theological stuff, the baggage, out of your head for a moment because what the word means is invitation. And it's in the context of inviting people to a wedding feast. And now it all starts to get easier. Jesus says many people are invited to the feast, which is exactly what the whole parable is about. And he concludes by saying plenty of people are invited, but particular people are chosen. And that's what the summation of this parable is. So now we're going to read the parable. And I think when we get to that phrase, you'll go, oh, that fits perfectly with the parable. I get it now. Because it's actually a very easy to understand phrase that has been complicated by years of theology. Got all that? Got it. Okay, good. Only you. I don't care if anybody else has got it. But if you... Chapter 22, starting at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again a parable. Who's them in that context? The Pharisees. The same audience. The audience has not changed. Especially if you look at verse 45 of chapter 21. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitude because they held him to be a prophet. There's no numbers there in Matthew's writing. There's an and, there's a conjunction there. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, 
the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay, now that language of wedding feast for his son permeates the New Testament. For instance, somebody turn to 2 Corinthians 11.2. You're going to see Paul pick up that language. 2 Corinthians 11.2. You know that commonly the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And the reason that the church is referred to as the bride of Christ is because of the kind of language that you're going to find in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Who has that? You got it, Todd? I do. Read it for us. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay, what does the word betrothed mean? Promised. Yeah, promised to, engaged, is the word we use in common parlance. So I have betrothed you, I have promised you to, I have engaged you to Christ, and he's talking to the church as a chaste virgin, to be a wife to Christ. Turn to Revelation 19. Keep your finger there in Matthew. Turn to Revelation 19 for a moment. You'll see similar language this time about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 will start in verse 5. And a voice came from heaven, from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Hold on to that. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So that is the promise of a marriage supper to come, the marriage feast to come, and even the angels say, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, Jesus knows all that. Jesus knows there's a feast coming. He knows the marriage feast is coming. When he was on the planet during his ministry, even as he's speaking to the Pharisees here in Matthew 22, he knows that the marriage feast is coming. And so he tells them a parable about the marriage feast of the Son. But he couches it in this parable language. So now we're back in Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Knowing what we know then, who is the king who's giving a wedding feast to his son? It's God. Who's the son? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, that's easy. We know the players now. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited. Past tense. Those who had been called to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. What's he talking about? 
This is just like the previous parable where he spoke of the people who went to work in God's vineyard. God left his vineyard in the hands of vine dressers who were supposed to take care of his vineyard, and then he sent them messengers, slaves, and they killed the slaves. He sent more messengers. They killed them, and then finally he said, I'll send my son. They see the son and say, that's the true heir. Let's kill him, and we'll take the inheritance. This is all about the fact that the Pharisees and the leaders in Jerusalem had always killed and stoned the prophets. He's going to say it later, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. And so this is their legacy, and now he, the son, the ultimate prophet is standing in their midst and he knows full well that they are going to kill him because that is exactly what is prophesied of him. He's saying the same thing, but he's putting it in a different parable. There is a wedding feast coming that belongs to the son. This is God giving a wedding feast for his son, for his bride. And there are those who were called in the first place. That's Israel. That's the vineyard that was supposed to produce good fruit. It's the same characteristics, the same group as the previous parables. These are all running in parallel. Parallel parable. Go ahead, say it a few times. It's not that easy. So he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. So again, he sent out other slaves. Again, this is parallel to the previous parable. He sent them prophets. He sent Israel prophets. And every time, they rejected the prophets. So he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready, so come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Parallel treatment, same thing he described in the previous parables, that when he sent prophets to them, they killed the prophets. So the king was enraged, verse 7, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Now, as we continue into chapter 23 and chapter 24, Jesus is going to continue prophesying to these leaders in Jerusalem that their city is going to be left to them desolate. God is going to destroy Jerusalem to the point where Titus and his army are going to destroy the temple and tear down the wall in Jerusalem and even burn parts of the temple because there was a rumor that there was gold between the stones and the temple and ultimately, everything Jesus said was going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple, and said to the Pharisees and the leaders, your house will be left to you desolate, all of that came true in AD 70. And so Jesus says that the king is enraged, and he's going to send his armies and destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. By the way, thousands of Jews were crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The destruction of Jerusalem was horrific. The king is enraged. And he sent his army and he destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited, past tense, who were already invited 
We're not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets, and they gathered together all that they found, both good and evil, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Remember in the previous parables, one of the things that the Pharisees were so upset about was that Jesus would allow the sinners, the tax collectors, the harlots. These were the people that he said would get into the kingdom before the Pharisees, which really upset them because they saw themselves as the good ones, as the righteous ones, as the law-keeping ones. And he said to them that they were going to be rejected and that the sinners were going to make it into the kingdom. Same idea here. It wasn't going to be the Pharisees, the originally invited, Israel that did not produce fruit. They're not the ones who ultimately make it to the wedding feast. It's going to be the ones that are then effectively called. They go out into the streets and they call people and say, you and you and you, come to the wedding feast. It's all prepared for you. Notice the evil and the good. Calling them, come to the feast. Go, therefore, into the main highways, says verse 9. And as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the street and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now, verse 11 gets even more interesting because the king came in to look over the dinner guests And he saw there a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Now, what you have to know is that in big ancient Middle Eastern weddings like this, it was the job of the host to provide people with wedding clothes if he invited them and they didn't have or couldn't afford wedding clothes. But also remember what we read in Revelation 19 about how everybody is clothed, how they are all dressed at the wedding feast. Do you remember? They're all wearing white robes. Where did they get the white robes? It says they were given the white robes and that that is the righteousness of the saints. And so to be at the wedding feast, you have to have the proper garment which is the covering that is provided for you by God. If you don't have that, you can't be at the feast. Now, the language here where the host or the king says to him, how did you get in here? There's a couple different ways to read it in the Greek. One of those readings is, how is it that you even got in in the first place? Because had you come through the door, the guy at the door would have given you your robe. He would have given you the clothing that was necessary, and yet you stand here without it. How did you get here? This, I think, harkens back to some of Jesus' statements about the people who would uh, try to climb up some other way when he talks about being the good shepherd and that he protects the sheep and he is the doorway for the sheep and that anyone who gets in any other way is a thief and a robber. In order to be here, you have to be covered. You have to have that robe of righteousness, and it has to be a gift, something that the host gives you. If anyone is there that doesn't have that covering, this is what happens to them. And this is very hard language. The king, verse 13, said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, into that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So clearly that is condemnation. That's hell language. 
That's outer darkness and misery language. And so at this point, it becomes clear that he's talking about more than just a tangible physical wedding feast of a physical human king. Now he's clearly talking about God and he is explaining to the Pharisees that they are going to be under judgment because the wedding feast of the sun is going to happen and all of the guests are going to have a covering that the Pharisees don't have. Because they have rejected Jesus, because they don't have faith in Christ, they don't have the covering of God's righteousness that is given to people as a gift. And because the Pharisees think that they're good based on their own righteousness and their own works, if they show up at the wedding feast of the sun, they're going to be cast out into outer darkness because they don't have the proper covering. Got all that? And that's the context in which Jesus says, for many are called, invited. There were all those people, the Pharisees, the Israelites, who were the original recipients of the call of God to the wedding feast. That's what we read in verse 3. Go out and call those who have already been invited to the feast. That's to Israel. And that's what the prophets did. They went and called Israelites to God. The Israelites turned on them rather than produce fruit. They produced bad fruit. And they rejected and ultimately killed the people that God sent to them. So then the wedding feast of the sun is going to be populated and peopled with other folks who rather than being simply part of Israel are called by an effectual call of God to come and be part of the feast. And the reason I know it's an effectual call is not only do they come, but when they come, they are given robes of righteousness, which they couldn't accomplish on their own, couldn't acquire on their own. And therefore, many are called, but few are elected, eclectos, chosen. So the call went out to Israel. Israel rejected the call. And now the feast is going to be accomplished anyway, but it's going to be accomplished with people who were elected, chosen, and brought to the feast and covered in the righteousness of Christ. Many were called. Many were invited. Few were chosen. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I think what confuses a lot of people, although I'll, I'll just speak for myself, if it said many are called but few accept the call, or many are invited but few accept the invitation, it would be, it would be very clear. But most of us think if you're called, aren't you chosen? Isn't that right. the same thing? Well, that's why you have to look at it in the context of the parable. Because he did begin by saying that he sent out his servants to call those who had been invited. So that's that first group. And that first group refused to come. That first group wanted nothing to do with Christ. And because they were Israel, because they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that original call was there. But they rejected the call. Why? Because they had no faith in Christ and so they rejected the call of God. But then there is this other group who have no individual righteousness, who aren't following the law. In previous parables, they would be the ones that were identified as harlots, tax collectors, sinners, the ones who were not originally called to the feast. The originally called rejected the invitation, and so then he sent out his servants to go out and just get people, go get the good and the evil and bring them to my feast. We are part of that group. 
we're part of the group that not only is effectively called to the feast of the Lord, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we're also given robes of righteousness that we didn't earn on our own. And then the very fact that he also includes somebody who tries to come to the feast without that robe, so that they're coming there in their own righteousness, in their own stead, they end up cast into outer darkness. And so Jesus is condemning the Pharisees who think that their own righteousness is sufficient to get them to the kingdom. Make sense? Some translations have it, many are invited because the context of the parable is about those who were invited. The originally invited rejected the invitation, so go out and call people to my feast. Those are the chosen, those are the elect. So the contrast is purposeful between the Pharisees who thought they deserved to be there and the people who had no reason to be there outside of they were elected to be there. And notice one more thing, that the reason that he went out and elected people from the highways and byways was specifically because at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb is going to have his feast. It is all about him. It is still for his glorification. And so go out and call sinners to repentance. Go out and bring my elect to my feast because I am going to have a feast and I am going to be glorified. Is part of the dynamic of what's happening here. It's all about Christ. Yes, sir. Uh, Revelation 17, uh, verse 14, it looks like. It says, For he is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And if chosen and faithful were already part of the called group, he would have needed to add that. He could have just said call and everybody there. But clearly the way it's written here, chosen is a subgroup of the called. And faithful. Yes. And they're faithful because they've been chosen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that language is pretty consistent. Anything else? I'm going to move forward. So I'm giving you a chance to ask questions. I see some pensive faces still. Yes, sir. Jesus starts off posing a free will message about invitation. But then he doesn't follow it up by saying, few accept the invitation. He says, few are chosen. So he ends up with an election message. That's exactly right. But even the original people who were invited were not people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. The original people who were invited are the vineyard. The original people who were invited were Israelites. That original invitation goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because they are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they are Israelites, the expectation is that they would accept the invitation. The fact that they don't shows their hard-heartedness, shows their rejection of the prophets and Jesus. And the result of that is that he goes out and calls others. And that's the point at which then Gentiles are also brought in, which would have been an even bigger affront to the conscience of the leaders in Israel who believe that all the promises of God belong to Israel exclusively. And why do the Gentiles get in? Not because they kept the law, not because they have the heritage or the genealogy. They get in because they were elected. 
And what is their righteousness? They are given a robe of righteousness that is Christ's righteousness placed on them. And if you don't have the righteousness of Christ covering you, you can't be any part of God's kingdom. Outer darkness. Got all that? Well, then I'm moving on. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. He has now condemned them. He hasn't openly condemned them. He's couched it in parables. As I said, he's about to unload on them. When we get to chapter 23, the harshest language you find from Jesus' mouth anywhere in the Bible is going to come up. And it's all directed at the leaders in Jerusalem. So now they're going to try to trap him and trip him up. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, those who belonged or followed Herod. Important, by the way, that they would send Herodians because King Herod was basically a vassal king of Rome. He was under Rome's thumb, under Rome's dominion. He collected taxes for Rome, and his power was based in the fact that Rome had propped him up as the king there in Jerusalem. And so this is going to be a question about taxes. Now, the particular tax... Some of your translations will say poll tax. Some will say tribute tax. The particular tax that they're going to discuss is the tax that was placed specifically on anybody who was not a Roman citizen. So if you were a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay this tax. But if you were among the people groups that Rome had conquered, you had to pay tax to Rome. Now, among the Israelites, they have a long history of things like Daniel where you don't worship any other king, you don't do obeisance to any other god, you only worship God, and taxation in so many ways, to this very day, is a form of worship. So the question is going to be posed to him, you Israelites, should you be paying a poll tax, a tribute, to Caesar? Especially considering that Caesar considers himself to be a god. So they think they've really got Jesus trapped here. And they send the Herodians along because these are the political leaders who go along with the religious leaders to ask Jesus a political question. And they think there's no good answer. Because if he says, yes, Israelites should pay the poll tax, they can say, well, then isn't that worshiping another god? If he says, no, the Herodians say, no, it is required that you pay tax to Rome because, after all, you are under Rome's dominion and they can get him for insurrection against Rome. So there's no good answer to the question they're going to pose to him, except, of course, the answer he actually gives them, which they did not expect. So they went and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and that you teach a way of God in truth and you defer to no one and you're not partial to any. They're lying. Turn over to the book of Luke for a second. Keep your finger right there. Turn over to Luke 20 for a moment. Luke extrapolates on this a bit. Luke 20, starting at verse 19 And the scribes and the chief priests 
tried to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. That was the parable of the vine growers that we looked at last week. And they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governor. See, they want to hand him over to Pilate. They want to take him to the governor. They want to give him to Rome. So they want him to do something that is politically a problem for Rome. They don't want to have to deal with him. They recognize, as the religious leaders, they recognize that the people see him as a prophet. And if they're responsible for killing him, they're going to lose sway with those people. They're going to lose their power. They're going to lose their authority if they kill the prophet of the people. And so they would really rather that Rome do the dirty work, which is much of the reason that they do end up taking him to Pontius Pilate. They say, we don't have any law to put a man to death, but we need this guy killed, so we need you to do it. There's a whole lot of political intrigue going on in the background that has to do with the ultimate death of Christ. So they even sent in spies who pretended to follow Christ, who pretended to be part of the righteous group. And the whole reason they were there was to listen, take note, get him to say anything that we can accuse him with. So verse 21, they questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak the truth correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Okay, now who said that? The spies that came in pretending to be righteous. That's why when we read it out of Matthew, I said, they're lying. Luke tells us who they are and that they are lying. They're there buttering him up to try to catch him in a statement. You understand the group now? Okay, back to Matthew. Matthew 22, verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? They think they've got him. But Jesus perceived their malice. Jesus knew what was up. Like they're going to fool him. Like they're going to fool the God of glory, the very living incarnate word of God who knows your thoughts, who is the one who will sit on the throne and judge every man. People believed on him and he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in every man. You're going to fool that one? So he perceived their malice and he said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Okay, Luke told us that they were in the group as spies pretending to be righteous. That's what the word hypocrite is all about. The word hypocrite has its root, the Greek word, has its root in ancient Greek tragedies. In order to understand what happened on the stage, in order to understand the tragic outcome of a play... They would send a guy out onto the stage who wore a mask so that you didn't know who he was, and he would tell you what each person on the stage did wrong that resulted in the tragedy so that you would understand the plot points. That actor who wore a mask and condemned the others was known as the hypocrite. 
And so Jesus picks up that language, knowing full well that they would understand what a hypocrite was. He's one who wears a mask and condemns others. So he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. And they get it. They understand that what he has just said is, you wear that mask of righteousness, and you go around and condemn other people. You're a hypocrite. So, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? By the way, that word is going to come up a lot in the next couple chapters. Jesus is going to call them hypocrites over and over and over because they are religious hypocrites, looking good, looking righteous, wearing a mask of righteousness, and condemning everybody else when they themselves are, in fact, guilty. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness, whose image and inscription is this? So they hand him a coin. Now, the Roman coins, of course, would have a picture of Caesar on them. This is Caesar's money, the same way that we have presidents on our money or that the queen is on British money. And so there's pictures of Caesar on the coinage. And he says, whose likeness and inscripture is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So far, so good. So far, they haven't got him politically. He said, this coin belongs to Caesar. It was printed by Caesar. It's minted by Caesar. It has Caesar's mug on it. It's clearly Caesar. Mug was the word I went with. It's clearly Caesar's coin. So give it to Caesar. So far, they would agree. But remember, Caesar is supposed to be God. The second half of his statement is, and give to God what belongs to God. In other words, Caesar's not God. You just tried to equate the two. And giving a tax, a poll tax, giving coin that already belongs to Caesar back to Caesar is not a form of worship. Worship belongs to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Pay the tax. But give to God what belongs to God. And that's not Caesar. He perfectly answered both sides in the argument. The religious people would have to go, well, yeah, you give to God what's God's. The political people would have to go, well, yeah, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. They thought they had him wrapped up. And he perfectly satisfied both sides in the argument. So then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And after hearing this, they marveled. And leaving him, they went away. You know they had to go back to their people who sent them in the first place. They had to go back to the Herodians and back to the Pharisees and go, we got nothing. We couldn't trip him up. We thought we had it. We took our best shot. We got nothing. So on that day, verse 23, we're nearly done, sort of, kind of. Verse 23, and on that day, some Sadducees. Okay, what's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You're grinning at me because you're expecting a joke, aren't you? And Matthew's going to tell us, just so there's no confusion. The Pharisees believe in angels, resurrection, that stuff. The Sadducees don't. Go ahead, tell your joke. 
No, go ahead. No, you want to. I see it in your eyes. The joke is they didn't believe in resurrection or angels or any of the spiritual stuff, and that's why they're sad, you see? Oh, really? It got that kind of laugh out of you? All right, good. I feel better about it. I thought everybody had always heard that joke. Oh, well, good. Then I'm glad it came up. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. Here they go again. They think they're going to wrap him up. They think, oh, here's a good question. This time he's not going to be able to answer this one. This is good. Saying, teacher Moses said, if a man dies having no children, then his brother as next of kin will marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Absolutely right. That is exactly what Moses teaches. It's exactly what the law says. If you take a wife, remembering that all of your inheritance, the land inheritance, has all been laid out by God. God has parceled out land to particular family groups and tribes, and that land has to remain that way in perpetuity. And if you marry a wife and if you die before you're able to produce a child, a son, an heir then your brother had to marry that same woman until there was an heir produced for the family so that the land would continue to have an heir. And that is what the law required. So now they say this in verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh. Get the idea? Seven different guys were all married to the same woman because none of them produced an heir. Last of all, then, the woman died. So, in the resurrection, now remember, they don't believe in a resurrection. So they think they're going to undermine his resurrection teaching with this question. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? Because they all had her as a wife. Good question, huh? Tricky question. Ooh. All seven of them all had the same wife. So now in the resurrection, if there is such a thing, so then in the resurrection, which one would she be the wife to? You don't know. You can't answer that. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. We got you. We've got you cornered. You can't answer this question. That's exactly how they talk. That is, that is a typical Sadducee phrase. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. It's Hebrew. Never mind. (laughs) And he said to them, and I find this just fascinating. He said to them, first, you're mistaken. But here's why they're mistaken. You don't understand the scripture. How often have we seen Jesus do this? Take people back to what does the scripture say? Do you understand the word of God? Do you understand the scripture? Notice that he did not start out with his own authority, even though he could have. He could have started with, let me explain it to you based on what I know because I'm in charge here. But he continually drags the Pharisees back to the scripture and says, this is your standard. This is what you should know. This is what you should understand. And the reason you could even ask me that question is because you don't understand the scripture. You Sadducees who don't think there is any resurrection, the reason you don't think that is because you don't understand the word of God. And you don't understand the power of God. 
For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, in a moment, he's going to argue in favor of the resurrection, and it's a brilliant argument. But the reason that he says you don't understand the power of God is that they were thinking that the resurrection was going to be the same as the physical life we now live. They couldn't differentiate between how we are now and how we will be then. Paul, of course, in talking about the resurrection, explains that this mortal is going to put on immortality. This corruptible puts on incorruptibility, that we're going to be changed. When he argues about it in writing to the Corinthians, he said that when you bury a seed, the plant that comes up is not like the seed. The seed is different than the plant. If you take a a seed of corn and you plant it, it's a little tiny seed. When you plant it, it becomes a plant that produces fruit and ears of corn. And it's not like the seed. It's different. And so he argues that human beings have to be planted in death, but then the resurrection body is different than the physical body that you plant. And so that's why Jesus said, you don't understand the power of God. The resurrection is not like you're imagining it to be because you're imagining it to be like we are now. But how we are now is sinful and depraved and dying and corrupt and we get sick and we get old. None of that's going to happen after the resurrection. And because of that, you have no comprehension of what the resurrection is about. In the resurrection, they don't marry. Neither are they given in marriage or promised or betrothed in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven, ever living and sufficient. And the relationship is changed from a marriage between a man and a woman to the marriage of the church to the son. The marriage supper of the lamb is between the church and the lamb. And your primary relationship is no longer the relationships that you had here on earth during your earthly sojourn. Your primary relationship is between you and your God. And that is an eternal relationship. And he said, and you don't get any of that because you don't understand the scripture and you don't understand the power of God. But now as touching the resurrection, here's his argument, verse 31, in favor of the resurrection. But regarding the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read? There he goes again. Back to the text. Back to the text. Back to the text. What does the Bible say? What what have the prophets said? What does the scripture say? Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? Even more interestingly, he is about to quote the scripture, and yet he said what was spoken by God. Don't you find that interesting? Jesus himself, who would know, who is the chief authority on God, said that this Bible you're holding in your hands is God talking. And if he said it, then it has to be true because you don't have the authority to undermine what he has already declared. He is the chief witness for God on the planet. And when he quotes the scripture, he says, that's God talking. When you pick up your Bible and you read it, You ought to read it with the appropriate reverence of understanding that this has been handed down to you as the called, as the elect, as the chosen. This has been handed down to you, the faithful, and as you read it, it is the very word of God speaking to you. As regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? Saying, now he's going to quote from Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac 
and the God of Jacob. Okay, so that's how God described himself. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. Why would he say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they had already gone into their grave? Why would he still call himself the active God of those people if they were in fact dead? He says, no, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, and he is the God of the living. And that means there must be a resurrection, according to Jesus, which is very, very good news if you're old and decrepit like me. And if you're really looking forward to that whole new body thing, and if you're really anticipating that no more sin and no more decay and no more death, if you're really anticipating that whole God wipes away every tear thing, if you're looking forward to bursting up out of your grave and ever living in the presence of God, if you're looking forward to being caught up off the planet and meeting the Lord in the air, if you're looking forward to to ever living in in the place where there is joy abundant, in the place where righteousness reigns. If you're looking forward to any of that, you have the sure guarantee of Jesus right here who said that God is the God of living people and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, though they're in the grave, are still alive and that means that the resurrection is a reality. And if that is Jesus' argument in favor of the resurrection, then I gotta go with the resurrection is true. No matter how hard it is to believe, no matter how hard it is for our puny little brains to conceive of, it has to be true because Jesus himself said it and based his argument in God has already stated it. That's what Jesus meant when he said he that liveth and believeth in me will never die. Will never die. That's why he could say things like before Abraham was I am and that Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it. Abraham was long dead by the time Jesus said that but he was arguing that Abraham was still alive. I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, he is the God of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Which is the right response, by the way. We'll stop there till next week. It's building. I hope you feel it building. He has argued with the Herodians. He's argued with the Sadducees. He's arguing with the Pharisees. We're going to get to the top of chapter 23, and he is going to start unloading on the religious leaders and on the Pharisees and repeatedly calling them hypocrites and a a brood of vipers. And he's going to tell them that they are hypocrites because they require everybody else to keep every small jot and tittle of the law and they condemn them when they break the least of it and yet they themselves are constantly breaking it because they don't understand the scripture and they don't understand the power of God and one of the most fascinating things of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees is he doesn't just condemn them but he condemns them and leaves them in that state of darkness and then enlightens Jamie And it comes and gets Todd, or Jean too, or Jennifer. Why? Because he's going to go out in the streets and the byways and the highways, and he's going to choose the good and the evil, and he's going to say, come to my supper, because many are called and fewer elected, fewer chosen. See how it all kind of ties in? You get where this is all going? You see where Jesus is making the same argument over and over again?
Salvation is the direct result of God's choice of you. It is not the result of your choice of God. It is a result of him not only choosing you, but then giving you a robe of righteousness that you could not achieve on your own. And because he chooses people and gives them righteousness that they can't achieve, they get to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you've got an angel in heaven crying out in Revelation 19, blessed are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I hope to see you there. I plan to be there. I'll probably be seated way in the back. But I plan to be there. And if you get a good seat, hold a place for me. Ask me to come up. You get all that? Good. Testifying in the back. Questions? No? We're okay? Better than okay. Better than okay. Saved. Saved. Saved is better than okay. Think of all the language we heard this morning and think about how really glorious it is. Marriage, supper of the Lamb, and resurrection, and eternal life. And Jesus walked around talking about that stuff like it was the back of his hand. He was so familiar with it all, and he knew full well that he's the one that pulls people out of their darkness, brings them to himself, and guarantees their eternity. That's just such good stuff. All right, then. Okay, I was waiting. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.